As a real estate manager, Principal Asset Management harnesses the power of a 360-degree perspective, delivering local insights and global expertise across public and private equity and debt. Their teams apply local insights and global perspectives to help identify the most compelling investing opportunities. Principal Asset Management, actively invested. Learn more at principalam.com. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of Principal Global Investors, LLC. Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart. That means choosing just any insurance company just won't cut it. At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry and help provide solutions that suit how you do business. From liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. At The Hartford, we don't just talk about specialization, we live it. Learn how The Hartford can help your business at thehartford.com. And welcome to another episode of the Odd Lots podcast. I'm Joe Weisenthal. Unfortunately, my co-host Tracy Elway is out today, so it'll just be me solo. But uh, it's going to build on some conversations that Tracy and I have been having lately on the show. So as everyone knows, you know, it's a theme that we've really been talking about for maybe two years now, or at least a year and a half. And this idea of like, okay, supply side expansion Everybody likes the idea in theory of like, okay, expanding productive capacity in the economy. And that's very hot right now. You have all kinds of people talk about it. We had Ezra Klein, for example, on the show talk about it recently. We also see it in D.C. There's real action and the Inflation Reduction Act is specifically about building out capacity and investing in uh, new energy and so forth. Uh, we saw it with the uh, CHIPS Act that was also passed about building up U.S. Uh, domestic semiconductor uh, capacity, et cetera. However, that being said, I still believe that there is this core tension, particularly among left or liberal parties, and that you definitely see in Democrats. Clearly, one aspect of building out supply-side capacity is energy and oil, gas, and so forth. And obviously, there's interest in renewables. But in the meantime, this is a real constraint. Inflation, high gas prices, high electricity prices, etc. And while on one hand, you have, uh, you know, there's an impulse to expand supply side capacity, there are also climate goals. And so I believe that there is this real tension among sort of left liberal parties in the West, at least specifically, between Yes, this idea of expanding supply-side capacity versus meeting climate goals and not giving a boost, per, is uh, how to put it, to the fossil fuel industry. And I don't think that parties have really resolved this tension. That being said, there is a party that has been thinking about this tension and finding a way to resolve it, both in terms of policy and politics, for a long time. And that is the Alberta NDP. Alberta has historically been a very sort of energy, you know, energy is a huge part of the economy, and it's also uh, seen as a conservative province. And yet the Alberta NDP has had a surprising, a shocking amount of electoral success in the province, having been in power from the years 2015 through 2019 as sort of this meteoric like shocker. 
And it reminds me personally of the fact that, you know, Joe Manchin can win in West Virginia in some respect because, it you know, there's such a, in the U.S., such a red area, maybe it would be characterized. I don't know what the color schemes are in Canada, but similar idea. And so I want to learn more about the Alberta NDP, how they do it politically, and how they think about these potentially competing policy goals. So I'm very thrilled to welcome to the podcast today. I am going to be speaking with uh, Rachel Notley. She is the leader of Alberta's official opposition, the leader of the Alberta NDP, and she was the provincial chief from the years 2015 through 2019. And election season is gearing up in Alberta once again. It could be uh, this spring. It could be sooner, maybe later because of how parliamentary systems work. So we're going to talk about what are what's going to come up in this election season. So, Rachel, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Well, it's a pleasure to be here, um, uh, Joe. And uh, yeah, it sounds like uh, you've been having some very interesting conversations as uh, we go through a lot of uh, yeah. economic growth and uh, evolution. I really do think this is like a really difficult um, challenge, you know, in the U.S., for example, for the Democratic Party. And I suspect for the national NDP in Canada as well, though you'll tell me more about that. But it seems like you've kind of cracked the code, like to some extent, at least electorally. But from a policy standpoint, like just let's start big picture. Like how do you think about balancing the importance of the natural resource sector, the importance of energy, both from a sort of employment standpoint and uh, abundant energy perspective, with also uh, thinking about climate goals? Well, um, you know, I think probably from the very start, one of the things we tried to do is avoid using terms like balance because it, in, it, it implies the notion that they, they uh, run against each other. Uh, and and the reality is that you know one of the things we have to remember is that you know um, th- there are a lot of things that impact uh, economic activity at any given time. One of the things that's impacting the, it now is the the collective need to uh, uh, grapple with climate change. And and so what you therefore need to do to continue to grow the c- economy and provide good paying jobs is to also address one of the pressures impacting your economic activity in this case climate change. And so uh, addressing climate change is part of good economic policy. It is not a countervailing force to good economic policy. And and so if you start there, then you, you know, you flow from that, this notion that uh, uh, pitting one against the other means that you will fail on both. And and so that's one thing that's sort of driven a lot of what we've had to say from the very beginning, as uh, as as you describe us as sort of a left leaning party. Uh, there is no question that we start our um, uh, journey towards uh, economic growth and and development from the perspective of wanting to ensure that there are good paying jobs for everyone who wants them and that there is a high level of prosperity for all citizens, not just a few. And, and so obviously, uh, so, so we do that, that aligns very much with my history, which is long, 58 years old in uh, the NDP, because uh, I was born into a very political family and have worked in the labor movement before getting into politics. And and so uh, I don't see standing up for working people 
as being a, uh, in, in any way, shape or form, as being in contradiction uh, to my values as a New Democrat. And I also believe very strongly that respecting and acting on science and reality is also a fundamental part of being a, a New Democrat and someone who's left-leaning. And so, and, and that's why we must also uh, work to address the issues of climate change. Well, there are those who argue that no, Canada can't simultaneously be a fossil fuel or energy powerhouse and also hit uh, emissions goals or do what's necessary in order to defeat uh, climate change or to reduce emissions enough to bring that into into appropriate range. Why do you th- why are they wrong? Well, First of all, because, um, you know, a big part of Canada's economy, not just Alberta's, I mean, Alberta, you know, for your viewers, Alberta's essentially, you know, yeah. uh, from an economic point of view, it's it's Canada's Texas. And so it gives you a sense of how much of our economy is driven by uh, the non-renewable sector. And, and of course, we in turn drive considerably more of the uh, Canadian economy than our population or geographic size would suggest. And, and so... The reality is, is that, yeah, but we are also a democracy. So, you know, should we, uh, you know, simply act solely on matters of climate change without doing the hard work to maintain strong employment and and strong economic capacity while doing that, then quite honestly, uh, the whole issue would fail because in the next election, those people who were doing that would get thrown out, and mm-hmm. and uh, and and then you know there'd be this this swing back to to the other direction. And uh, to be clear, in both cases, not only would we meet our, our our climate change goals, we would also mess around with our economy because the uncertainty created by that. And and the and the stop and go created by that would of course undermine our economic growth. So that being said, there's no question that that uh, there is the capacity to create jobs out of the investments that are necessary to ensure that oil and gas producers and non-renewable resource producers significantly reduce uh, their emissions, both in the process of production as well as in um, in, the, in the application of the product once it's produced. So uh, there is money to be made in that, and, and that requires creativity in a number of different ways, and that's where you get into issues of uh, carbon pricing, but doing so in a way that, that still keeps the day-to-day experience of, of those folks who we owe our job to in mind front center. As a leading real estate manager, Principal Asset Management harnesses the power of a 360-degree perspective, delivering local insights and global expertise across public and private equity and debt. Our experienced teams are uniquely positioned to uncover compelling opportunities in today's market, giving our clients an exclusive advantage. Principal Asset Management actively invested. Learn more at principalam.com. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of Principal Global Investors, LLC. Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart. That means choosing just any insurance company just won't cut it. You need a company with extensive experience in specialized insurance. 
At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry and helping provide coverage that suits your needs. The Hartford offers insurance solutions that help mid to large sized businesses like yours effectively manage risk from liability and property insurance to workers comp and more. With extensive experience in underwriting, risk engineering services and claims, The Hartford goes beyond the expected to deliver innovative, customizable solutions and service that your industry, that your business demands. At The Hartford, we don't just talk about specialization, we live it. Learn how The Hartford can help your business at thehartford.com. Can you talk a little bit about um, your experience with carbon pricing and how you think it should be applied? Because in the U.S., of course, again, I mentioned we recently passed the Inflation Reduction Act, and it feels like the direction here is the sort of like all carrots and no sticks approach. And there's very little that is would curtail any uh, carbon intensive energy. It's mostly about subsidies and accelerating the production of renewables. What is your view and experience with how carbon pricing can work? Well, I mean, I think, first of all, what carbon pricing does is it, I mean, I suppose to a certain degree as a stick approach, it provides an incentive for producers of emissions to do their homework and 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 find uh, the easy wins to reduce their emissions. I mean, it just is what it is. And some of that's easier than others. I mean, you know, methane, for instance, is, uh, is, is sort of the you know, commonly referred to low hanging fruit and uh, other stuff is, 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 is more complicated. So there is a bit of a, of a stick there, but it is also a carrot because a good portion of the resources that come in from collecting that carbon tax or that carbon price are then redevoted to assisting and, and supporting efforts to reduce emissions. And it's not necessarily redevoted right in directly to the non-renewable resource uh, producer, although mm-hmm. in some cases it is for sure. We actually support technology that is directly focused on extracting oil and gas. But in other cases, it also helped us, for instance, to uh, fund what we refer to as the REP program, which was the Renewable Energy Program. And what we were able to do there, because even though Alberta is probably the sunniest place in Canada and it's got a lot of wind in certain parts of the province and blah, 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 we had a very nascent renewable energy industry here. And we used some of the funds from the Climate Leadership Program which was what we referred we referred to it as the CLP when we were in charge and it mm-hmm. of course created funds as a result of the tax and we used some of those funds to uh, create a create a a reverse auction where we invited uh, renewable energy proponents from across the continent to bid down the cost of renewable energy products into Alberta and as a result of doing that, we ultimately were very excited because we ended up getting much less expensive renewable energy production than had previously been approved in other parts of the continent. We be started to become a real destination for renewable energy investment. We encouraged and succeeded in, in partnering uh, with Indigenous proponents. And, uh, and in some cases, they just were leading the whole thing. And, and we were able to, to really kickstart an industry that hadn't existed before. And moreover, some of the biggest proponents, some of the biggest people who bought into that were, of course, non-renewable energy producers themselves, setting up their own renewable energy production in order to help reduce the energy required for their extraction efforts. 
You know, you mentioned sort of working with the indigenous people's interests. Can you talk a little bit more about how you think about that? Because, of course, again, this is another area in which, at least in the U.S., among liberals and the left, there's an increasing weight on this. And we do know that around the world, and we, you know, even if you look at, say, the recent, you know, attempt at a referendum in Chile, for example, this tension of extractive industries with the consideration of indigenous populations, how you think about how that works in Alberta? Well, you know, I think the first thing to 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 do is to understand that, um, you know, the the interests and and the the desired paths of of uh, First Nations communities across the country are not homogenous. There is a difference mm-hmm. between many of them. So that's the first thing. But with respect right. to, but where there is an interest in participating in economic development, uh, in partnership with programs that are, are being considered by provincial and federal governments as well as municipal, then I think it's really important for provincial governments, in our case, we were provincial government, to do everything we can to offer up opportunities to, uh, to partner with Indigenous groups. Honestly, this is one of the few things that that we've agreed with our political opponents over uh, when they created the Indigenous Opportunities Corporation because they put aside uh, funding to help provide financing that uh, some Indigenous groups wouldn't otherwise get access to to help them partner in some of these projects. Now, that being said, when even notwithstanding that, we were successful in working with groups to, you know, in, in Fort Mackay, we got uh, a community off of diesel we we've been working we anyway we've we've been able to do a number of different projects but really in the spirit of reconciliation it's all about offering up opportunities where they are desired but certainly working with them where they are not and we know there's not consistency across the board and and there's a lot of work to be done it's very complex you know relationship between indigenous people different right. communities within those indigenous communities as well as uh, the courts and the evolving uh, constitutional law on it so um yeah it's very complicated but for sure yeah. Where possible, we absolutely want to uh, work with uh, First Nations communities to give them the kind of economic agency and independence and opportunity that that they're seeking. Let's talk more about just sort of the Alberta energy industry. Would you like to see, or the Canadian energy industry, depending on the framing, would you like to see Canada become a natural gas export powerhouse? Because obviously that's a major focus here in the U.S. and the entire world is sort of clearly thirsty for any uh, molecule of natural gas that can be produced you know, in the U.S. and Canada. And my understanding is that the LNG export capacity in Canada is not as uh, big and not growing as fast as it is in the U.S. Would you like to see that grow? Well, I think absolutely LNG provides a lot of uh, potential opportunities, not only for us as Albertans in terms of exporting a product we have a heck of a lot of, but also uh, in, in the larger picture, because, you know, obviously there are energy security issues, which, you know, just and, and we know that energy security continues to be a, a front of a front and center issue. And so LNG is is an answer to that. And, and we have a lot of good product. But there is no question that our regulatory schemes here in Canada have presented a bit of a challenge as well as some of the, you know, 
court-determined processes that we're compelled to go through. But I think in the long term, it does provide an opportunity. It is, you know, obviously much lower emissions. It's cleaner. It's non-renewable. It's cleaner. It may not be, you know, our long-term permanent, permanent solution, but it is absolutely an improvement over a lot of different other forms of non-renewable energy. It also forms the basis for hydrogen which has in, incredible opportunities and and we're our parties doing doing work with a lot of stakeholders about our opportunities in hydrogen here in Alberta again trying to create and keep jobs here for skilled tradespeople in in that industry uh, or in the oil and gas industry as a whole so so yeah it, it definitely provides opportunities it's not the be it's not everything but it is absolutely yeah. something that we need to be uh, uh, taking advantage of for sure so you mentioned, and let's talk politics for a second, because you, you characterized Alberta as uh, Canada's Texas, and that seems apt to me. I've never been to Alberta, but you know I've seen <laughs> pictures of the Calgary Stampede, and I'm like, yep, that sounds right. I used to I used to live in Texas myself, so you know when I've seen those photos, like yeah, that sounds like an apt analogy. And yet, you know, here you are, you you won, and uh, you, uh, you 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 were the premier of the province from 2015 through 2019. Now you're in the opposition. You may uh, regain power in the forthcoming elections. Like, what is it? Is it just, in your view, is it just the sort of the energy standpoint? Like, how do you break through in a region? I mean, like the Democrats can't figure out figure it out here outside of West <laughs> Virginia. Like, what do you think it is? And are there lessons for the broader NDP that you think uh, they could take from looking at the success of the Alberta NDP? Well, I think I, I will say, I mean, it's interesting. I was listening to uh, a different podcast a few days ago that was noting that, you know, Alberta is a lot more complicated and a lot more multicultural, mm -hmm. a lot more diverse than than some of its the the more traditional characterizations of it. Sure. Um, so I think that that is so is Texas. So is Texas, to be fair. And, you know, Texas. I bet that's and, probably and, true. And so, again, yeah, sorry, but go on. But it is true also yeah. that pre people have some conception of. Texas, but then, you know, go to the Houston suburbs or something like that. And it's probably not what many people have in mind. But sorry, keep going. Yeah. No, and that, that's absolutely true. So because I was going to say, I mean, we are yeah. uh, in part because of the the number of people who have flocked to the prosperity historically provided by oil and gas in in Alberta. We we have the benefit of having now the youngest, best educated and I think second most diverse population in the country. So so that that is a little bit about who we are. But we're also I mean, you know, even in the industry itself. There, there are groups like in oil and gas that are focused on, you know, they, they, they understand what the international markets are looking to, and they are focused on getting to re significantly reducing their emissions. You know, the oil sands pathway groups has set 2050 as a zero emissions target. You know, I mean, there are groups that are very genuinely working on it. And I think as well in Alberta, one of the things about our province is, you know, there's a bumper sticker here that's very common among, and it's been around for generations. I'm, you know, I'm 58. And I think this, <laughs> this bumper sticker has been around since I was in high school in one way or another. And it's like, please God, give me another boom. And I promise not to piss it away. They had that in, they had that in Silicon Valley after the tech bubble. We, they had their own right. version. It was like, they, please, please God, give us one more bubble or something like that. Exactly. So, so we're on a we're on boom number nine or something right now here. Maybe not quite that much, but we we've had some pretty profound busts, which created a lot of 
of, of real suffering for Alberta families, you know, right. since since we sort of first took off in the in the I would argue probably the the late sixties is where it really sort of took over our economy in a huge way. And over that time, more and more people are taking very seriously the need to diversify our economy, both within the oil and gas right. sector for sure. But uh, within the energy sector as a whole, and that's why I was talking so much about renewable and different forms of renewable and, mm-hmm. and low emissions energy, as well as outside of energy altogether. And so Albertans are interested in a government that is prepared to talk about diversification, that understands that Alberta as a whole, even though we have a lot of capital in this province, we are a relatively small player in an international market. And if we are going to establish a foothold in a strong foothold in other industries, we're going to have to work together strategically. And that's the kind of thing and the kind of thinking you get from, you know, governments that that believe in the value of government while at the same time mm-hmm. believing in the value of job creation, inflation protection, strong public services like health care, which is very important to people in this province, very, very important, like public education, like access to a good, strong post-secondary system. These are all values that we also have come to care about and and to expect delivery on from government in this province. And so it's those kinds of things that we've been we've been able to connect with folks about when when we're talking to them about what they want to see from their provincial government. What should be done on inflation? And I've seen you tweet about this and you know talking about uh, food inflation in Alberta and so forth. What, what should be done about what should be done about that? Well, you know, listen, I mean, I appreciate you you're speaking to a broader group and we do all understand that that um yeah. that that inflation is, you know, it's a it's a very uh complicated problem to solve. But here's the thing, within the world of of uh things that Albertans can the Alberta government can do without, you know, contributing to the problem and I think there's a lot is you need to have a government that is going to start by not making the problem worse. So in in this province, uh, since the last election, we have seen a cap on utilities removed. We've seen a cap on car insurance removed. We've seen a cap on tuition removed. We've seen school fees go up. We've seen personal income taxes go up. Uh, We've seen property taxes go up. We've seen a tremendous reach into the pockets of regular families. And so those kinds of things are all things that can be reversed. We can can keep money in in folks' pockets and, and we can do that without contributing to the overall inflationary challenges that we are experiencing. So, you know, there's just been a lot of extra costs piled onto Albertans even before we uh, entered into the the last, you know, a few months and year or so of, of massive inflationary pressures. You know, I just speaking of Twitter, looking through your feed right now, right before you came on the show, you pointed out record electricity rates on the way and you say the UCP government has done nothing. What would you do had you been in power to address the surge in electricity prices? Well, to be clear, when we were in power, we did actually redesign the electricity uh, process, and we were in the process of doing it. We Alberta uh, shares the Texas energy-only market model, which means that we are highly subject to uh, variations in the price. And so we had moved off of that to a different model, or we were in the process of doing it. And when doing that, we also had put in place a cap on electricity prices 
to shelter consumers during that transition. That has been reversed and the cap was removed. If the cap were still in place, we'd be at about a third of the expected electricity prices that we expect families to be um, hit with in the month of October. So just last week, we called on the government to put on a temporary electricity cap because they've, mm-hmm. they've put forward a, a minuscule little rebate. But when your electricity goes from 500 to 1000 in a month, $50 is not going to cut it. And it's that unpredictability, which is, which is creating a huge amount of anxiety for Alberta families. And so we're saying that until we can get the, the price of electricity under control, the cap should come in place. And until we can get to other measures of inflation back under control. But as they say, as they yeah. say in the in Game of Thrones, you know, winter is coming and uh, right. these folks uh, need to pay attention to the experience of Alberta families. You know, I want to go back to something you said, actually, uh, again, uh, the bumper sticker. And you mentioned that, you know, Alberta has probably had at least nine distinct booms and busts, which is, of course, to be expected. I exaggerate a bit. Sure. I think I, I think I exaggerate. <laughs> I think I go through. I'd find about okay. five. All right. Maybe, five. Four. Well, whatever the yeah. number is, though, like that is part and parcel of having a resource dependent economy. That's every every right. Every country or every state that is heavily uh, exposed to natural resources has these boom bust cycles. And so one answer is, sure, diversification, but it's a difficult process. It's a long term process, et cetera. Mm-hmm. How do you think about provisioning and funding public goods in a sustainable way? such that they can survive and last through both parts of the cycle? Well, I mean, I think that, I mean, I think uh, it really does go to diversification because what we need is a stable source of revenue that comes from Mm -hmm. taxation that's built off of a more diverse economy. And so, yes, right now the, the government is flush with royalties and that is great, but that, you know, that really to a large degree cannot be built into our operating expenditures. It needs, we need instead to be, you know, moving that money into the kind of investments that creates long-term diversification to smooth out those uh, peaks and valleys and, and to create a more consistent and stable revenue source. And so, so yeah, I mean, and, and to be fair, I mean, Alberta's economy is making progress in that diversification effort, even as uh, oil prices are, are, you know, uh, going way up right now and our royalties are huge, you know, interestingly, folks are not getting hired back into the industry at the same rate that they once were. And and so there is some, some diversification going on. And now when you have the resources to do it, is the time to strategically invest to encourage it. One example is, um, you know, the the very investment that goes along with getting to net zero by 2050 is estimated to be capable of creating 175,000 new jobs. And from that, one finds a more stable income source. As a leading real estate manager, Principal Asset Management harnesses the power of a 360-degree perspective, delivering local insights and global expertise across public and private equity and debt. 
Our experienced teams are uniquely positioned to uncover compelling opportunities in today's market, giving our clients an exclusive advantage. Principal Asset Management actively invested. Learn more at principalam.com. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of Principal Global Investors, LLC. Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart. That means choosing just any insurance company just won't cut it. You need a company with extensive experience in specialized insurance. At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry and helping provide coverage that suits your needs. The Hartford offers insurance solutions that help mid to large sized businesses like yours effectively manage risk from liability and property insurance to workers comp and more. With extensive experience in underwriting, risk engineering services, and claims, The Hartford goes beyond the expected to deliver innovative, customizable solutions and service that your industry, that your business demands. At The Hartford, we don't just talk about specialization, we live it. Learn how The Hartford can help your business at thehartford.com. Can you talk a little bit more about pipeline politics? And I know there was a dispute and challenges with the Trans Mountain Pipeline, I think going back several years. What is the status of that? And how do you negotiate with leaders in other provinces who have different (laughs) attitudes? And my understanding is that there was some tension with the British Columbia. uh, They were leaders. They weren't as into it. What's happening with that now? There there was tension. There's no question about it. It was a... you know, I, I'd, I'd like to think about it in hindsight as a sort of expression of some some uh, respective democratic wills. But I mean, ultimately, what we did was we made we, we campaigned essentially as the government of Alberta instead of fighting with everybody and demonizing everybody and demonizing the federal government and demonizing environmentalists and all that kind of thing, which is and this is, you know, which which is uh, certainly something that we see happening with our provincial government now. We went across the country, including into British Columbia, where a lot of the opposition was based. And we talked to them about First of all, what we were doing to actually protect the environment and to reduce emissions and and to be part of a long-term path to, to reasonable and attainable emissions targets, while at the same time also talking to them about the, the real-life economic value that their communities experienced as a result of the oil and gas and non-renewable industry in Alberta. And we went into rooms that weren't necessarily friendly to us. And we did that all across the country in order to build support and to build the kind of political support that would also help the federal government take the steps and make the decisions that they made in order to support the the pipeline. And then, of course, you know, even with that, there were still about, I don't know, and now I'm not exaggerating, at least nine different legal forums within which the debate was was held and 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 it wasn't until after we lost government that the that the courts finally uh, came down once and for all on the fact that you no know, all the issues had been addressed and that uh, it was appropriate for the pipeline to go ahead. 
So is it completed yet? No. It's scheduled to be completed next fall. There is a tremendous amount of construction going on now. So uh, we, we are optimistic. When it's completed, what will that enable? What will what will change when that's open? Well, what it does is it enhances our market flexibility. So because it goes to Tidewater, it allows for uh, our product to be not just beholden to going to the U.S., but also potentially to look at Eastern market destinations. So that's one thing. So it increases our market flexibility. It also just increases our pipeline capacity. Uh, periodically, what will happen is if we run out of pipeline capacity, because we're so far from many of our markets, it ends up going on rail or in some really horrible cases into trucks. That Both of those, of course, are much more uh, emissions creating methods of transportation. Yeah. But also what it means is that the, the price that Albertans get for the product that we all own is severely discounted. And then if we lose out on that, then frankly, taxpayers all across the country lose out on that. And and so uh, shipping our product in a cost-effective way, we maximize the, the return uh, for Albertans and for all Canadians. And so that's that's the impact of it there. But, you know, it, it also, I like to sort of look at that whole campaign as a good example of you know, grown-up government working with multiple stakeholders, multiple levels yeah. of government in partnership, hearing their concerns, honoring to, to as much as possible those concerns and, and negotiating. You know, we, we currently have a government that has done nothing but pick fights with everybody for their own political gamesmanship with really no interest in a positive outcome. And quite frankly, the, the the most likely next premier is going to take that and dial it up another 100%, which will ultimately undermine the kind of investment stability that we need, not only for strong economic performance in oil and gas, but even more importantly, for making real progress on emissions reductions and meeting our climate goals. Because let me just go back to this. As New Democrat, sure. I do believe we must do everything we can to meet our climate goals. So actually, that seems like a good, I'm glad you went there because that's exactly what I was wanted to sort of wrap up on. But like, what does that look like to you when you say, okay, meet climate goals while also building pipelines? What What is your vision for getting there? Well, as I said, I mean, like even the oil sands themselves, the Pathways Group has set 2050 yeah. as, as a net zero goal. Whether that's ambitious enough, I mean, we'll keep an eye on it. But for sure, we need to be uh, reducing emissions. We have a, a policy target of reducing emissions in our electricity sector to zero by 2035. And we know that there's a number of different things that can be done in uh, the oil and gas sector to reduce emissions. And, so, and we know that we can actually create jobs in the course of doing it. So that's that's what it looks like. You know, I, I think that we it looks like government pushing for sure. It's not just setting out carrots and then and then hoping that the market follows. It's a combination. Mm-hmm. Uh, a government does have to push, but we'll always do so with those uh, working folks, you know, front and center and in in terms of uh, the interests that we're pursuing and ensuring that uh, we maintain a viable oil and gas sector because the world is still going to need our oil and gas for some time yeah. to come. And and if we listen to what international markets are telling us in terms of the responsibility with which we need to produce it, then I think that uh, we have a strong future ahead of us. But that requires strong leadership and a commitment to climate goals and um, that's what we want to deliver. Rachel Notley, uh, 
head of the Alberta NDP. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I've wanted to speak for a long time and uh, really appreciate you taking the time. All right. Well, thank you. It's a pleasure to chat with you. Well, I really enjoyed getting the chance to speak to Rachel. You know, I do think this is like one of the big tensions, and I don't know the way it's going to resolve, but clearly, look, there's a lot of political and economic interest in finding sort of ways to deal with inflation, ways to deal with high costs on the supply side. And I really think, look, energy isn't literally everything. And how governments do that, how the private sector does that is absolutely core. And so everyone likes the idea of supply side expansion, except in energy. And then you get this like real tension, right? Or many people perceive there to be a tension between economic goals or sort of like supply side and climate. Although as our guest, Rachel Notley said, she doesn't view them in tension. So I was very excited about having that conversation. And uh, I think also it's very interesting politically because, look, there are some parties in the West that find success in deeply conservative areas with this type of message where it's sort of like a more optimistic stance towards the resource sector with a more liberal left uh, agenda elsewhere and finding success. So I think this is a very interesting political story to be tracking and uh, it will be very interesting to see the results of the next election. So I'll leave it there. This has been another episode of the Odd Lots podcast. I'm Joe Weisenthal. You can follow me on Twitter at The Stalwart. Follow my co-host Tracy Alloway on Twitter at Tracy Alloway. Follow our guest on Twitter at Rachel Notley. And of course, follow our producer, Carmen Rodriguez at Carmen Armin. And before we go, you know, we were talking about this net zero endeavors that every all these governments and companies and industries are going forward i'd like to for you to check out a new podcast recently launched by bloomberg it's actually called zero and it's about this effort it's hosted by our colleague akshat rathi and it's about the tactics and technologies that could get us to a world of net zero emissions they have a new episode with canadian prime minister justin trudeau so check it out on all the major podcast listening platforms and of course you can follow all of our podcasts at bloomberg under the handle at podcasts thanks for listening Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart. That means choosing just any insurance company just won't cut it. At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry and help provide solutions that suit how you do business, from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. At The Hartford, we don't just talk about specialization, we live it. Learn how The Hartford can help your business at thehartford.com. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. 
title sponsor, Amazon, official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.